6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, Revelation Part 2. There are two tribes missing. I thought there's 12 tribes. Well, there's 12 tribes here, aren't there? Name one of the tribes that's missing. Ephraim, good, that's good. Many people miss that. Ephraim's there, but it's in disguise. You see, you've got Joseph in here, but by the time you get to Joseph, you've already mentioned Manasseh. The tribe of Joseph consists of Manasseh and Ephraim. Well, Manasseh's listed, so what's left is Ephraim, but it's called the tribe of Joseph. It's as if the Holy Spirit's giving him the back of his hand. He's there, but not by his personal name, you follow me? But there's somebody else even more conspicuous that's totally missing. Tribe of Dan. And this is legend. People have speculated about this way back, even in the Old Testament period, strangely enough. As you study the tribe of Dan throughout the Scripture, you'll notice that the more you study him, the stranger that tribe is. And so we're going to wonder, where's the tribe of Dan and where's Ephraim? Well, Ephraim I've mentioned. Why is Dan not here? Well, the, the general consensus by theologians is it's the tribe through which idolatry entered the land. The golden calf up north and all of that. There are also strange prophecies. Jacob, in Genesis 49, prophesied over each of the 12 tribes. When he get, and he had these little riddle very enigmatic little prophecies. The one about uh, Dan was that he would be like a serpent. The tribe of Dan thus had the serpent as a symbol, but Ahazer, the head of that tribe, didn't like that idea, so he changed it to an eagle with a serpentous mountain that later becomes an eagle. Moses says something very strange in Deuteronomy 33, verse 22. He says, he shall leap from Bashan. Bashan is what you and I would call the Golan Heights, up north. What makes that prophecy rather strange, after Moses, of course, Joshua takes over when they conquer the land, they finally, after seven years, they, they succeed. And then the land is allocated among the tribes. And the allocation of Dan was west of Benjamin, that is, visualize it between Jerusalem and the coast. And they can't cut it there. Their big hero was Samson, who did a lot, he made a lot of colorful pranks on the Philistines which are the adversaries there, uh, but he didn't really accomplish much. And when he dies, they can't hold the turf. So they send a military group up north. They find a town called Laish, which they capture and take over, and they move up north. So during the history of Israel, they say from Dan to Beersheba, is the way we would say from Maine to California. In other words, Dan up north to Beersheba down in the extreme south. But that wasn't where they were allocated. And yet, it's so fascinating to look back and see that Moses predicted that they would leap from Bashan because they not only went up there, they then leave from there. And strangely enough, when you get to uh, Judges 18, 
Deborah and Barak had this huge uh, victory over Sisera, and she compliments the tribes that helped, and she disparages the tribes that didn't help. And about Dan, she says, he wouldn't even leave his ships. His ships? What's he doing in ships? So we get the impression that Dan sought their future separate from the commonwealth of Israel very, very early, even in the days of Exodus and on. It's interesting that uh, something that may shock many uh, uh, historians is to discover that Sparta and Troy were Jewish. Uh, you can find letters from uh, in, the, in the book of Maccabees between the high priest and the king of Sparta uh, acknowledging uh, their common ancestry. So uh, it's very, there, there's a whole side here to study, but uh, Deborah's indictment gives, you, gives a hint there's far more going on here. And, and so Dan is in any case, for whatever reason, you'll also discover throughout the, the, the uh, text that uh, where, there's ge where they go through, like in First Chronicles, they give the chronologies, uh, the, uh, the genealogies, excuse me, the genealogies of each of the tribes, they don't, they skip Dan. The Holy Spirit seems to have something against Dan from, from the get-go. And so he's admitted from the genealogies, and of course he's not sealed during the tribulation, which is what Revelation 7 is all about. Okay, so we have this parenthetical topic, chapter 7, and then we get to the seventh seal. It picks up in chapter 8, verse 1. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. But it's interesting, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, and it's interesting that he studied, again, studied Jericho, and the seven times they march around the city, they keep silent. And the seventh time, they do it seven times, and then they shout, and the walls come up. But you notice the, the patterning is very deliberate. Anyway, it goes on, and I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. We've been through seven seals, now we're going to go through seven trumpets. The seventh seal is silence in preparation for the seven trumpets. The seven angels, which the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound, and the first angel sounded, there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth, and a third part of the trees was burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Some scholars try to make those symbols, some of them take them very literally. It's your choice as you get more familiar with the, with the thing. That's the first trumpet. The second trumpet, the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and a third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea had life, and had life died, and a third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, people have different views as to what these visions and symbols mean. But I can tell you, after 50 years of study, is every time I go through it, every time I think I've learned a little bit more, it's always nudged me in the direction of taking it more literally than before. So that doesn't mean I'm right, but I can tell you, I, I have come more and more to believe that God means what He says and says what He means within the, within the framework of, uh, of figures of speech. But uh, when you've got... A creatures in the sea that died because of this, and a third part of the ships are destroyed. I tend to think that that's real water and real ships and real oceans, but that's just my view. There are good scholars with different views. And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon a third part of the rivers and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. 
and third part of the waters became wormwood. And many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars. So as, as a third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So we have the fourth, the darkness, a third of the sun and stars. And I, heard, and I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, get this, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet the sound. In the vernacular, I'd say, you haven't seen anything yet. The next three are real doozers. The inhabitants of the earth. You'll notice all through the book of Revelation, you have the earth dwellers. They're the losers. The term is used of those that are going to experience this judgment. You're going to see, God isn't through. There are people that get saved and so forth after the rapture, many. But it's, uh, understand that the, the earth dwellers are the inhabitants of the earth. I don't believe that means everybody that happens to be here. I think it's the people who inhabit the earth. That's their focus. That's their dwelling. That's their commitment. In contrast to us who are pilgrims passing through. But uh, anyway, this is the warning of what the so-called, the last three trumpets are called three woes. So we've got three woes coming here. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the abuso, the bottomless pit. Now there's only one place that a pit can be bottomless. Think about it. Where is the only place you can have a pit that has no bottom? Let me ask you another kind of a question. Suppose I had a house, and each side of the house faced south. And I looked out the window and saw a bear. What color would the bear be? Hmm? White. Good. Because the only place I can have a house with four sides, all, all of which are south, is at the pole. Using that same logic, where's the only place you can have a bottomless pit? The center of the earth center of the earth, all directions are up. So I'm, I'm one of these crazies that I really think the abuso is geocentric. At least it is, certainly is idiomatically. It's interesting to me that Hades and Sheol and abuso are all geocentric terms when the Gehenna is in the outer darkness. Just a thought. Anyway, we're moving on. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there rose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now are these real locusts? I don't think so, and I'll show you why. These are idiomatic locusts, and I'll show you why. In Revelation 9, it goes on for many, many verses describing these creatures. And they are strange creatures. The, and it goes on, they had tails like scorpions, and they had stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them. Aha, there's a clue. They had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Proverbs 30, verse 27, tells us that the locusts have no king. 
It happens to make that remark. But I think the Holy Spirit put it in there to help us unravel this. These locusts have a king. So are they locusts? Not, not in the natural sense. The, those are idioms for some kind of demon creatures. Because these have a king. And that's kind of interesting because if you study Amos chapter 7 verse 1 in the Septuagint, you'll discover that there is a very big difference in the Masoretic, the Hebrew, and the Greek translation three centuries before Christ of that particular verse, is that the name of the king of the locusts, his name is Gog. Gog and Magog. Gog is a title. It's a demonic title. Magog is a people. Anyway, moving on. This is, uh, at this point, though, one woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And that's idiomatic, of course, of the golden altar in the tabernacle. Saying to the sixth angel, which had a trumpet, Loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, and a day, and a month, and a year, to slay the third part of men. This is a strange passage because it seems to underscore the fact that demons, demon hosts, are geographically bounded. What on earth, if the fact that there's these demon creatures, fine, what does it got to do with the river Euphrates? The river Euphrates will show up several times in the book of Revelation. The, the river Euphrates was the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. It's very strange because there's major negotiations going on between Israel and Turkey over the water rights and so forth. The water is more precious in the Middle East than, than oil in some respects. You can't drink oil. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone or of wood, which can neither see or hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. One of the cloudy, gloomy aspects of the book of Revelation, nowhere in the book is their repentance. As these things come and they get worse and worse and worse, people still don't repent and acknowledge God. Very dismal forecast. Okay, so we've got these six trumpets. Now again... At, we would expect a parenthesis, and there's a substantial parenthesis here of a handful of chapters, four chapters. We have chapters 10 through 14. Chapter 10 is, has a strange episode. The mighty angel comes down with a book and has uh, asked John to digest it. In chapter 11, you have this interesting episode of these two witnesses. And then you have uh, chapter 12. is an interesting chapter. It's a summary of the history of Israel. And then chapter 13 introduces us to these two beasts that we collectively call the Antichrist. Remember, there's two guys, a political leader and a religious leader. We'll see them in these two beasts of chapter 13. And chapter 14 is sort of an echo of chapter 7. We had those 12 tribes, the 144,000 sealed. The fruits of their preaching will show up in chapter 14. So we have this interesting parenthesis. And the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe cometh quickly. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell down, excuse me, fell upon their faces, and worshipped God. 
And so the seventh trumpet is a declaration that the mystery of God is finished. Well, that's pretty exciting. Let's take a look at this parenthetical passage. See, the seventh trumpet ushers in, will usher in, when you, get, when you get to it, the seven bowls that are coming. We had seals, trumpets, then bowls. The bowls that were coming. This mighty angel that shows up in chapter 10, he has a book that's un, it's now unsealed. He tells John to digest it. It also is written within on the backside. Many scholars feel that the book he's talking about is just the book we've just seen open. It also says, Thou must prophesy again. Some people feel that, well, it's turned over, or it's a repeat, or it's an overlay. There's different views on that part of it. Then we have this peculiar passage of the seven thunders uttering their voices. Seven thunders utter their voice, and John is about to write what they said when he is instructed, don't write it. So he crosses it out. He removes it. And it's puzzling. Why on earth did he even mention it then? I have a theory. I think the seventh, I think the word of God will not be complete until those seven thunders utter and are recorded. Any Bible doctrine that's built on the premise that the canon is complete is thus a frail. I don't think there's anything else missing other than the seven thunders. Don't misunderstand me. But there are people who try to make an argument that the gifts of the Spirit were only until the canon was complete. The gifts of the Spirit didn't end. You can't find a biblical basis for saying they ended. There are lots of different gifts, and there's a whole study that we went through that with second, when we were in First uh, uh, Corinthians 12, 13, 14. But I think this, what's interesting about the seven thunders, if nothing else, is that it puts to silence any attempt to make a doctrine that the canon is complete. But uh, that's the speculation. Let's go on. In chapter 11, we have the temple featured in the first two verses. Because of that, uh, this, is a good, this would be a good place to insert background on the temple, except we covered that pretty well last time. I'll let it go. Jesus, Paul, and John all make reference to the fact that the temple will be standing. Jesus does in Matthew 24, very key, the key to end time prophecy. Paul alluded to it in 2 Thessalonians that we looked at last time, and that's why we went into it last time, although it shows up here in Revelation in the first two verses of chapter 11. The temple is standing. But the rest of that chapter deals with these two characters that show up. The temple's measured, as I indicated. The outer court is given to the Gentiles for 42 months. That's the first half of the, or the last half of the, the uh, 70th week of Daniel. These two witnesses show up, and they're empowered for 1,260 days. The, the, again, we have the 42 months, 12, these are the half weeks, if you will, of Daniel's 70 weeks. Together, they can do four different things. They, they can call down fire from heaven. One, they can shut, down, shut heaven so there will be no rain. They can turn water into blood. And they can smite the earth with plagues. It's for that reason that I'm among those that believe that these two witnesses are literally uh, the two guys that had those four powers. I'll come back to that in a minute. Elijah and Moses. Elijah called down fire from heaven. He's the only one that did that I can find. Uh, remember at Carmel? He also shut heaven down for no rain. And what's fascinating about that to me you won't find this recorded in the Old Testament, but you'll find allusions to it in the New Testament that how long did he shut down heaven for no rain? Three and a half years. I think that's interesting. 
And of course, Moses turned water into blood and smit the earth with plagues. So these, uh, these, these particular powers that are listed there are indicative of Elijah and Moses. And both Elijah and Moses had their ministries interrupted. So you can make, you can, there's a whole study you can get into. Other people have different views. What's interesting about this is that they will, when they're through ministering, they will be killed by the Antichrist. And this is the only celebration that occurs on the earth in the book of Revelation. When they're finally killed, the world exchanges gifts, thrilled that these troublemakers are finally killed. And they, the bodies lay in the street for three and a half days. I assume it's featured on television. Then the big scene occurs as they're resurrected and taken up to heaven. I can just imagine CNN covering that right now. I can just visualize that. Chapter 12 is a fascinating summary of the history of Israel in, in idioms. There's a woman identified with the sun and the moon and 12 stars, and she's with child. The first thing you need to understand is who is the woman? Some people try to make her the church, and as Chuck Smith likes to point out, if the woman is the church, she's in big trouble because she's pregnant. Church is supposed to be the virgin bride. No, the sun, the moon, the stars is an identity that no, none other than Jacob himself identifies her with. She is opposed by the red dragon who is identified in verse 9 of chapter 12 as Satan. He has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, which are, of course, idiomatically all through the book of Revelation. Her, his goal is to devour the man-child as, as soon as he's born. But he, the man-child is, is the one that's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Who is that? Jesus Christ. So identified in several passages in the Scripture. He's caught up to God in His throne. And the woman flees into the wilderness for 1260 days. Now what's kind of interesting about this, most people assume that when the man-child is caught up to God in His throne, that that's the ascension of Christ. And that may well be what's in view. But I think it was G.H. Pember, back in 1814, that first noticed the possibility that may be an allusion to the rapture, because the body of Christ is caught up. In other words, idiomatically speaking, they, those are lumped together. So we're in this parenthesis between the, church, the church's birth and the church's rapture. So there's the, there are those views embedded in the passage here. The, word, the woman, I believe, is Israel because of Genesis 37, verse 10. The red dragon is serpent, the devil is Satan, so in Revelation 12, 9. The man-child is none other than the kinsman redeemer, as will be exemplified in Revelation 19 when we get there. And so that's pretty clear. Satan has been trying to devour the man-child, or certainly thwart, his, thwart the plan of God. We reviewed that during our study, the corruption of Adam's line back in Genesis 6. Uh, the, the attack on Abraham's seed in Genesis 12 and 20, the famine in the earth in Genesis 50, the destruction of the main line by the pharaohs in Exodus 1, Pharaoh's pursuit of Israel even after saying they could go in Exodus 14. The 400 years that Satan had to lay down a minefield in Canaan with the Rephaim and, and the populating of the, with this, again, with more Nephilim and all of that. And then as God reveals his plan that's going to be through David, then David's line gets singled out for special treatment.
Again and again and again, there are plots to kill all the heirs to the throne, but there's always one that slips away or is hidden by a servant or what have you. And even when you get to the Persian period, under Haman, under uh, uh, the Persian Empire, Haman tries to wipe out all the Jews. So these are always satanic. Prejudice is always bad, but the anti-Semitism is very specifically satanic. It, from Revelation chapter 12, becomes, it becomes very clear. And it, and it occurs, it continues in the New Testament. Joseph's fear with Mary when she turns out to be pregnant. Herod's attempts to kill the babes at Bethlehem. Uh, the, the attempts at Nazareth to throw them off a cliff. The two storms at the sea in, in Mark 4 and Luke 8. I don't think were normal natural storms. These are fishermen that knew those waters that were terrified. And of course the ultimate strategy was the cross. And the summary of all of this is what we see in Revelation 12. But the real point is he's not through yet. He's still at it. You need to understand why and how he, go, how, how he operates. We get to Revelation 13, we have the two beasts introduced. The beast out of the sea is the first one. He's the political guy, seven heads and ten horns. On his heads are the, with the name of blasphemy. Because he, he's, he's, he's taking up against God, as 2 Thessalonians 2 highlights for us. One of his heads, was he had a deadly wound, and that wound was healed. I think it's a literal wound, by the way. I think that's the description that we'll come to in a minute. He's powered by the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. He's power empowered by Satan for 42 months. And he overcomes the saints. Now that's a very strange thing. You find that in um, Daniel 8, and you'll find it here in Revelation 13 which is contrary to what Jesus said in Matthew 16 at, at Caesarea Philippi, when he told Peter that the gates of hell shall not prevail, overcome, same word by the way, overcome or prevail. And so they're, 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 my argument, these saints are not the church. They're post-church saints, as scholars use the term tribulation saints. The earth dwellers worship the beast of the sea. And the, that is all those that are not written in the Book of Life. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.